Hello all and welcome to episode 15 of Everything But The Kitchen Sink podcast. Normally we discuss history or crime, but today we will be living up to the podcast's name because it's ghost story time. For this episode, you will hear five ghost stories from the Appalachian Mountains. Whatever you do, don't listen alone. The Crying Statue Haunted cemetery stories have been around as long as the dead. They're told over and over, and youths often test the stories by visiting the resting places of the dead in the dark of the night. Some have found evidence that gives credence to some of those old stories, but there are others who never speak of apparitions seen, voices heard, or experience witnessed. One such story comes from a very old cemetery in Cobb County, Georgia. Some of the gravestones are giant statues with intricate engraved words about the deceased buried beneath them. Others are mere rocks with no words, no record of the life, not even a name of the soul who lies beneath the dark cold earth. Yet one gravestone is noted for its haunting sadness. It is that in the late 1800s a child died and was buried there. The mother, devastated beyond all measure, almost lost her mind. To ease her pain, a gravestone was commissioned that showed her holding the child lovingly in her arms. Weathered, worn, and mottled gray, with lichen and mold, the stone still marks the small grave. It has been told for years and witnessed by many that at certain times, when the moon is full and the lights the dark of the night, that stone woman cries tears down on the stone child she holds close to her heart. Some have heard faint crying, but whether from the child or the mother, they do not know. The tears, though, are the mother's, and they glisten in their wetness as they course down her stone cheeks. In her undying sorrow, the sad mother had mourned the loss of her beloved child for almost a hundred years, and if the stone stands for a hundred more, she will continue to weep when the moon is full and lights the night sky. The Water's Edge Sometimes, cries through these old mountains aren't heard in life, but there are a few that even death can't stop. The sounds grow more haunting in the memories of the mind. The man's eyes carry a faraway look as he scoots a little closer to the table and runs a hand through the gray whiskers of his beard. He has told the story before over the years, but neither the telling nor the passage of time has lessened the turmoil it creates in his memory. It was a long time ago, I remember, he says. It was just, I was just a young man, well, not really much more than a boy, when that girl come up missing. Don't recall her name, but folks came from all over to look for her. They probably covered ground in four or five counties. I know me and Josh Tatum went and helped with the search one Saturday. It was rainy and cold. Nobody found anything. It was like she just disappeared. We said we'd go help the next Saturday, but we didn't. Being young, I guess we found something we thought was better to do. Then time went by, and she wasn't found, and finally the search for her was called off. All the talk of her dead died down, and folks just seemed to forget her. Me and Josh seen a picture of her. She was pretty with long brown hair and brown eyes. I guess she was maybe 16 or 17 about the same age as us folks. Folks figured maybe she'd run off with a sweetheart, but her papa and mama said she didn't have one. 
It always bothered me how everybody just stopped looking for her. One day, me and Josh was going fishing down to the creek. There was a real good deep fishing hole there where we always caught fish. We raced down the logging trail and climbed over some downed tree trunks and was just having a good time getting to the creek. When we reached the fishing hole, we noticed a big black plastic sack in the water. It was lodged under some old tree roots that were sticking up where the high water had washed the banks out. The hair on the back of my neck prickled and my stomach got shaky. I think Josh got spooked too. We didn't go anywhere near that sack but decided we didn't want to fish that day and got away from there as quick as we could. Something, something made me call the sheriff about that sack and I guess him or his deputy went to see about it. Because sure enough, it was that missing girl. She was dead. Someone had killed her and put her in the sack then threw it in the creek. Me and Josh went back three times to fish, but every time we got to the water's edge, we heard the sound of someone groaning, like they was hurting real bad. We never seen anybody. There wasn't even a sign of anybody there when we looked, but we could hear that groaning real and plain as anything. It was coming from where we saw the sack in the water. After the third time, we knew it must be sounds coming from that girl that was missing and killed. We never either one of us ever went back there again. That was a sound I don't ever want to hear again, and I wonder if it's sound I'll ever be able to forget. The Woodcutters Three generations of David men were clearing a portion of their newly purchased land and cutting the pulpwood. The land was to be used as a field to grow corn come spring, and early winter was always considered the best time to cut lumber. The sap was generally down, making the long tree trunks easier to manage. The men had worked hard all day, and before they realized it, dark was upon them. They lacked only one ridge line being through felling the trees. An old shack on the other side of the rusted barbed wire fence marked the boundary line for their land. The men decided to stay the night there rather than go home and have to return in the morning for only a couple hours of work. Besides, the oldest David man reminded the others that the headlights of the old truck hadn't worked in years. The youngest, Brad, wondered if the old shack was maybe once a hunter's cabin as there was a pot-bellied stove and a couple of chairs and an old iron bedstead inside. He asked his grandfather. The old man wasn't sure, but it agreed it was a good possibility as this land was considered prime hunting ground. The men dragged the old stove close to the broken window and managed to shove the old fallen-down stovepipe with its rusty elbow joints together and stick it through the broken window and attach the other end to the stove. Plenty of wood lay around, and since they hadn't eaten all the fried chicken and cornbread sent by the elder Miss Davis, it would be set till morning, and then they could finish the job and head home. After going to sleep, the three men were suddenly awakened by a scream, followed by a baby crying. Before they could discover the origin of the sound rendering the night, the threesome heard gunshots. They quickly grabbed their boots and coats and ran for the old truck where they sped the remainder where they spent the remainder of the night. As dawn broke, there was enough light to see the noise of the old truck's engine creeping echoed through the stillness. Cold and scared, the grandson drove the old truck down the mountain. 
After they forded the creek, a small house came into sight around the bend in the road. A woman was seen standing on the porch. Brad stopped the truck and the three got out and went and asked the woman about the shack they had stayed in and the screaming and crying. They asked if someone could have been shooting up there in the middle of the night. The woman looked at the three men as if they were somewhat foolish to even go about the old shack. She informed them that many years ago, the man living there had gone crazy, killed his wife and child, and thrown their bodies down the well before he shot and killed himself. The Haunted Tree Seems every ridge and hollow in southern Appalachian foothills has its own name. Some names fit, like Stover Mountain, because the Stover family lived there as long as anyone could remember, or the records had been kept. Some places have lost the reason for their name. The stories birthing the names have died through the passing of time, yet the names have remained. An example is in Fanning County, Georgia. In the far reaches of Georgia, near the Tennessee-North Carolina border, a small church, Mount Agony, is located between Hell's Hollow and the Devil's Den. Evelyn Price Daugherty has lived her entire life there, embraced by the foothill mountains of southern Appalachia with its strange names for places and landmarks. She tells stories that she remembers and experienced in the early 1900s in the foothill mountains she calls home. This story took place in 1942 near the old haunted tree in McGee Town, Tennessee. Evelyn and her cousin Lucy were going up the road to Lucy's house. They had to pass right by the haunted tree, and it was late in the day. It was a scary place, especially if you were young and the sun had fallen behind the mountains. When the girls got close to the haunted tree, they saw a man sitting against it. A chill crept over them. When they were about to pass the tree, the man stood up, and he had no head. He wore a black suit, white shirt, and dark tie. He had a shotgun and walked about with the gun stock on the tip of his booted foot. Lucy and Evelyn stopped dead still. The chill had turned to terror, ice cold and paralyzing. The man began walking towards them, headless, the shotgun held braced on top of his foot by a heavy ham-sized fist. When he reached the girls, Evelyn screamed, breaking their paralyzed state. Lucy ran one way and Evelyn the other. The girls were almost scared to death. When Evelyn told her parents what she had seen and where, her father wanted the mother to whip the girl for telling such untrue tales. But Evelyn's grandmother and an aunt were visiting at the same time and said, You better not whip that child. She's telling the truth. We've both seen it too. Echoes of Death In Union County, near the upper end of Indian Creek, Lush growth of pines and deciduous trees shade the sylvan bed of ferns and undergrowth. There, if anyone is still and listens carefully, screams can be heard echoing through the woods. The same kind of pained outcries that accompany sudden and horrible death. Of course, no one is really there, not a living soul. This is a world of phantoms, phantoms that keep alive a tragedy that befell the family of the country's earliest settlers. 
In the late summer of 1779, William Lewis and his family packed their belongings in North Carolina and set out for the Promised Land, the vast new territory that lay across the Appalachian Mountains. Lewis chose a plot on the upper reaches of Indian Creek and cleared land to build a cabin for his wife and seven children. He had fine, strong sons. Together they failed trees, notched logs, and soon built a serviceable cabin. Not long after the family moved into its new home, the temperature dipped below the freezing mark. The first frost of autumn had come. The Lewises had packed enough provisions to last until spring planting. In the meantime, the woods were alive with squirrels, rabbits, and deer. William Lewis had brought plenty of firepower across the mountains, so his family had had an abundance of fresh meat. Now, autumn was also the favorite hunting time for the Cherokee Indians. From their main camps to the south and southeast, they entered Upper East Tennessee to hunt food for the winter. Hunting parties must have passed the Lewis's cabin from time to time and eyed the building and occupants suspiciously, perhaps even nervously. Indians knew from experience that one family of settlers begot more settlers. A steady stream of white families was beginning to inch westward, and they all seemed to feel that their rights to the land had that they had occupied for centuries. The Indians' relationship with whites was always was already becoming a string of broken promises, with the whites breaking any formal agreement reached by the two parties, whenever it was their advantage to do so. The French and Indian War, in return, had taught settlers much about Indians. Indian attacks were often hit-and-run affairs, with the Indians doing as much damage as possible to the settlers before taking the shaken survivors, mostly women, as prisoners. Women and children were often adopted into the tribe. The most dangerous period for settlers was those few days after the first frost when unseasonably warm weather enveloped the forest. This was known to whites as Indian summer. Those days were the first time the Indians were likeliest to attack. By the middle of October, the Lewises were comfortably settled in their cabin for the winter. Their bins were full of corn, dried meat hung in the long brown strips from the rafters. The fireplace kept the cabin warm on chilly nights. Although the small cabin was crowded, the family knew that as they prospered, they would be able to build a larger house, at which time the original cabin would be converted for use as a barn or a storage shed. Early one morning, the forest was unnaturally quiet. No birds sang in the trees. Even the rustling water of Indian Creek had a different sound to it and the weather was unnaturally warm. William Lewis, not suspecting anything was amiss, took advantage of the mild temperatures to do a bit of fishing. Accompanied by his eldest son, he walked a short distance to the bank of Indian Creek and threw in his line. Father and son had not been fishing long when a war whoop rent the air. Then screams rang out from the direction of the cabin. Lewis and his son threw down their lines, grabbed their muskets, and ran towards the house. By the time they arrived, the log cabin was in flames, and all around lay the crumpled bodies of the family members. Lewis drew his gun to the ready, but there was nothing to shoot at. The Indians already melted into the forest. His son glanced around, tears streaming down his face. Lord God Almighty, he cried.
Lewis, too, was nearly beside himself with grief. His wife and children lay at his feet, their bodies bristling with arrows and gurgling blood. His four-year-old daughter's head was smashed in. His six-year-old son was beaten to such an extent that his face was no longer recognizable. His wife had been stripped of her clothing and a crude knife had been plunged into her belly. The promised land had become one of horror and death. Crushed, Lewis and his son began the sad task of burying the family. They could see the remains of one child inside the burnt cabin, but they could not recover them until the fire had burnt itself out. Another child lay in the bushes behind the house. What manner of savage makes war on women and children, Lewis asked himself angrily as he piled dirt onto the last grave, vowing swift justice for those who had murdered his family. Then he discovered his eldest daughter was missing. A thorough search and inspection of the cabin's ashes revealed no further traces of bones. Lewis searched the area surrounding the cabin, but no body was found. He suspected his daughter had been kidnapped by the Indians. After resting for a few hours, Lewis and his son picked up their muskets and began following the Indian raiders. Two nights later, the pair came upon a campsite where about a half dozen Indians were gathered by the fire. In the flickering light, Lewis recognized his daughter, scared to death, but apparently unhurt. His first inclination was to fire on the Indians in retaliation for the raid on his cabin. But there was only two white men and two muskets. All the other weapons had been destroyed in the fire. The Indians could easily murder the girl if they were suddenly attacked. Lewis decided to take a dangerous chance. Telling his son to remain hidden in case his plan failed, he sidestepped down the steep hill and calmly strode into the camp to the surprise of the unsuspecting Indians. At first, the Indians made threatening advances, muttering and poking at him with weapons, but Lewis wisely kept his musket held high over his head. When his daughter saw him, she ran to him and threw her arms around him, nearly knocking him off balance. One of the Indians, probably the leader of the hunting party, asked Lewis what he wanted. After a few moments of trying to understand what was being said, Lewis laid down his muskets and pointed to his daughter. Her, he indicated. The Indians understood immediately and shook their heads. They could not relinquish the girl, but then the leader of the party reached over and picked up the rifle. He had seen white men use the weapon before and was aware of its awesome firepower. The Indian indicated that he would be willing to trade the girl for the rifle. Although that would leave the three of them with only one weapon, Lewis readily agreed, also consenting to leave his powder horn and a small supply of ammunition for the Indians. Without another word, Lewis and daughter climbed the hill to where the surviving brother was crouched in hiding. The Indians who conducted the assault on the Lewis cabin were never seen again, when the three remaining family members crept back into the forest, it was to begin a new life in a new place, but the echoes of the tragic raid remain on the upper Indian Creek to this day. Every once in a while, the scream of a child or a woman is heard echoing through the valley. Cries of anguish are sometimes heard in the forest, accompanied by an occasional bone-chilling Indian war whoop. All the sounds are ghostly reminders of the horrible tragedy that took place long ago on a warm Indian summer morning.
there we go. There are five stories. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you guys next week.